When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Morgala, where I interview violinists from around the world. If you're new to the podcast, thanks so much for stopping by today. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button for future episodes. My guest today, and I'm really looking forward to this episode, is a friend of mine for a few years. He is a violin luthier based in New England, specifically Massachusetts, at the Carriage House Violins Violin Shop. Please let me welcome Adam Kologi. Adam, so nice to see you. So nice to hear from you. Uh, we chatted a little bit before the podcast. How are you doing? Doing good, you know, just working away. Just trying working to, away? Keep, yeah, keeping busy. Yeah, well, right now I'm, I'm looking at your shop, like in your house, right? Am, am I correct? Mm-hmm. And I yeah, see yeah. a bunch of violin scrolls. I see, um, and by the way, if you haven't followed Adam on Instagram, he has a bunch of great, like, um, behind-the-scenes footage of violin like the behind the scenes of violin making. So if you haven't done so already, um, I'll leave a Instagram uh, link in the podcast notes today. So Adam, first of all, let's just check in. Like, how are you doing during this uh, COVID-19 uh, outbreak? You've just, you just been making violins like nonstop since uh, I've, been <laughs> I've been following yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, just got a lot of work done, you know, uh, spending a lot of time at the bench. I do miss being... I miss the social part of like interacting with customers and like talking with my colleagues and like that sort of one-on-one feedback is really like it's missing from my life. But like, honestly, like it's just been like maker boot camp. It's great. Like in, I mean, aside from all of the, the horrible stuff that's been going on, it's been great for my practice. Like I, I just have, I have hours to just fill with, you know, trying new designs and trying like refining things that I usually like, you know, am just strapped for time to do because I have so like, I have my, I kind of, I kind of have two practices that I do, you know, I do the restoration and repair and set up stuff for carriage house, which is my job. And then I, I spend the rest of my time working on my own stuff at home and usually like getting you know, after a full, a full day's work, like it's real work, you know, you come home and you're like, uh, I don't want to get right back to the bench and immediately start carving again. You know, you spent the whole day doing it. And now it's just like, that is my day to day. And it's kind of been, it's kind of been an interesting process. Yeah. Great. And you mentioned designs, you mentioned different templates. And I know that you're a guy who likes to experiment with different templates. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I want to get to that in a moment. But for those of for the, for the people who are not familiar with who Adam Kologi is, you know, you're a violin restorer, violin maker. How did you get started into becoming a violin luthier? Because I know that I had uh, Douglas Cox a couple episodes ago. He's a violin, you know, he has a very interesting background in how he got into violin making. But I'm curious as to know what your violin uh, making background is. Uh, wow, that's a, it's kind of a shaggy dog story. But, um, well, what was it? I moved to the Catskills after college um, and I was kind of living uh, uh, on the, on a piece of property with my in-laws 
and they all play these esoteric American fiddle tunes, the old time American fiddle tunes. Um, and I didn't, I, I played guitar, you know, like every kid from the suburbs. Like I didn't play anything else and I knew very little about it. And I wanted one, um, but uh, like right after college, you know, had no money and just like had, I had this job building cabinetry, you know, I had a, I had a history in woodworking and I, I just built one. Like I, it took me, it took me like three weeks and it was terrible. It was the worst violin ever. Oh man. I'm curious to <laughs> yeah. know about that. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like everything about it was wrong, but it, the, it, it, it lit. I, I really loved it. Like I, I, I always loved woodworking. I always loved working with my hands. I had gone to, I, I went to art school, a BFA and I just, I, I couldn't stop doing it after that. And like, I found this old junker like you do and glued it back together and started playing on that. And like, really I was coming at it with, uh, a, I really wanted to play. I really just wanted to play along with my family. Um, and that's where I kept coming. And then like slowly that I kept doing the repairs and kept reading and kept it researching like everything I could find, just voracious. And I started doing repairs for friends. I rebuilt my wife's fiddle, um, which was, <laughs> again, a junker. Uh, great stuff to learn on. And it just spiraled from there. And I kept doing it and kept doing it just slowly. And eventually my wife went to uh, apply for grad school in Boston. And I was like, oh, man, what are we going to do in Boston? She's like, oh, it's only two years. You'll find something to do. I was kind of still doing the woodworking thing and I had a bunch of other jobs too. I worked as a metal fabricator, all this stuff. And I saw a job opening at Carriage House or at not Carriage House, at Johnson Strings in the rental department of all things. And uh, I applied for it and talked to the shop boss there and he said, yeah, it's totally entry level. Like we'll, we'll get you started. You know, here's what you're going to need. And that's how I got into it. And, you know, eight or nine years later now, like I went from that and did that for two years. And then uh, when Carriage House came along, we, uh, I moved over there doing mostly commercial setups and some repairs, uh, customer repairs. Uh, but man, rental was just, it was just boot camp. That's where I learned everything. Like I, I know it's, it's seen as low level work in the, and it is, you know, it's entry level work. It's not to be denigrated or anything, but it is, it's like a great introduction introduction. And man, if I, if I was the violin making dictator, I would make it like the Israeli army. Like everyone has to do it for two really? years. Wow. Like you just, you have to, I, I can't, I can't even count how many bridges, uh, like I used to do 10 setups a day. You know, I do, uh, like I think the most I counted one time I do remember this like one day I wanted to know how many bridges I could cut in a day just bridges just violin bridges I think I did like 35 no way really in, it's in I mean they were that's rental, insane 30 30 bridges, bridges in a day that's that's a good okay well that's the benchmark y'all like <laughs> like any any, any <laughs> no, violin they, makers who are listening that's the benchmark like you got to do yeah, it I would I do want to qualify that with they were rental bridges you know they worked and they were lovely for what they were, but these were not like individually tap tested hand, you know, perfectly tuned to like, yeah. And fit like exactly to the, they were 
they were for student instruments. They were supposed to be well-made, sound good, long-lasting. And reliable. That's, and reliable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were, and they were that. But man, you do that for two years and you realize how much, even at that level where you're not like fine tuning things, like not really spending the time and thinking about every little aspect and what's the thickness over the heart and what's the thickness of the feet and the ankles and like really dialing everything in perfectly, which like, you know, now I spend, I spend hours on a bridge now. Like I really do. I, I make sure everything's perfect. I choose each bridge blank and I decide how I want to cut it for that instrument, for that arch, for that, you know, for that player, even. I think um, it also becomes like second nature, right? Like you, you're, you're in boot camp oh, for like yeah. every day for two years, like you know what to look for, like you know what makes a bridge a good bridge or an excellent bridge. And yeah, um, yeah and that's, that's so fascinating to talk about bridges because um, I, I was, you know, just randomly I had, I had a student the other day who had trouble with their bridge and it t it's like a small detail, but I think violin making in general is a lot of like perfecting the small detail. So the overall product of the instrument or violin, viola, cello, bass, whatever it is, like the little details kind of make everything come to play. At least yeah. for me as a player, you know, I, I know nothing about violin making, but at least from a, from a player's standpoint, like, you know, the height of the bridge, even, even if it's like a millimeter too high is yeah. already a huge difference. And um, yeah, so, you know, next time for every, everyone who's listening, like pay attention to those, like those little things. I think it's, um, you know, they could also help improve your, your sound, your setup. And before we get to the designs that you that you like experimenting with, um, talk about, uh, you know, setting up and restoring instruments. Like I'm sure that plays a huge part in actually making instruments when you, you're given like ancient rare antique instruments for you to work with i'm sure you get a couple details that's like the real schooling right there when you get yeah. an instrument like that in the shop and you get to like really observe it and fix it and see how to make it better right yeah i, I mean when every time you you have especially an old instrument something and, and that has been played you know not not uh there's a lot of old instruments that are around because they're not necessarily because they're great players or they're you know fabulous works of art well, maybe, maybe, it, but it could be those. Um, but because they work, um, they really sound good. They perform well. They feel good. Like they they meet all the criteria as as a machine to do a job, you know. Um, and it's those that are. It, it doesn't to me. I, I haven't. It doesn't really matter to me if it's like an an instrument of great provenance or something that's more workshoppy. Like one of my favorite schools of making is the Klotz family, which a lot of people have kind of like, you know, they're like, oh, you know, ger German work, you know, uh, it's not old in Italian. Um, but they cranked out, they made that family, it, like even individually, they made so many instruments. They were so productive. And so many of them are still played and in use and they sound great and they look great and they're, wonderfully designed and they've been worked on really really importantly i guess is they've been worked on for centuries some of them and you get to see it's like opening up a history book and you you take the top off you know depending on the repair take the top off and you're like oh that's a modern bar i wonder who did that and then you look at the shops it came through or where you got it from you're like oh well it's pretty fresh that must have come from so and so and then 
you look at the way the neck was done and you look at the way the graft was done. You're like, oh, that graft was cut. It's, it's in a French style, you know, well, it definitely, this went through from Germany to France to, you know, Pasadena, California, and now it's back in Boston. And it's just wonderful to be able to, it, it's so illustrative of every aspect of Luthery. You know, uh, it's one thing, it is definitely one thing when a great instrument comes through. Um, and it's, it's awesome to be able to hold it in your hands. And, you know, even if you're not taking measurements or anything like that, just to look at it and just to see what was done to it and see how people solved problems. Cause some, you know, old instruments, and this is my like pitch for buying a new instrument. Um, old instruments are problematic sometimes. They, they are difficult. They've been through a lot. You know, some of these things are 300 years old, 400 years old, like they're ancient. And they've, ev every person that's had it, you know, I'm sure you have your own violin. I know my violin, like I, it's got chips. It's got problems. I've dinged it. <laughs> you know, you do that for a couple centuries and like, those little nicks start to add up and you, to see all of the solutions for those problems, whether it's a crack or a bad neck or, or what have you, like overly thin plates or, or whatever. Um, it's just amazing. Like you can really see what people were doing and, and learn from it. And, you know, obviously sitting there with a, I've got notebooks full of everything because it's too much to remember. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. I love everything you said. Uh, not only are you looking at something historic, but you're looking at the history of that instrument based on all the repairs from like different parts of the yep. world. I'd never even thought of that. I think that's a, like a really cool perspective from a luthier, like having a different sound post from here and a different bass bar from this location and the different styles from different parts of the parts of the world. I think is incredibly cool if, if i may say and just as a player it kind of makes me excited to purchase <laughs> like um an old instrument and also like yeah. a new instrument you know i've tried your instruments and your instruments are really great they're set up really nicely i can tell that there's so much detail that goes into it and uh, i know each luthier is different but you said like for the first violin it took you like three weeks to make now that you're obviously more experienced nine years later what is like a comfortable time frame with you making an instrument that you're proud of um like start to finish yeah like start to finish from the moment you have like the design in your head to the moment where you're where like you can like ship it off to to a customer um i mean in in real time i'd say in the neighborhood of two months maybe three months but that's not working on just that instrument in that time because there's a lot of there's a lot of steps that are just waiting like a lot of like I have one here that I'm just waiting for the varnish to dry. You know, mm -hmm. I've been working on other stuff, but it's not going to be done for another month or so. I see. So you're you're working but, on other projects in the meantime. Yeah. Okay. So you're maybe, not just like maybe, waiting for this one violin to just like wait for the varnish, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe a, a way to put it would be in hours and I I'd probably 150, 200 I think. All right. So it's yeah. like it's like a solid a solid month's worth of, you know, forty hour weeks, essentially a, like a month start of full time. I think full time eight hours a day for a full month creating this one instrument like com compiled into like if yeah. Right. But you have to you have to stretch it over time because you can't. Uh, I don't think I could finish all the woodwork and then have the varnish be 
dry and then set it up. True. Yeah. Especially I think I need the extra time. True. Especially if you're going to be doing something of that high quality. Right. Yeah. You know, you want to make sure that you you do have the time. I mean, you don't want to like rush into things because I think, you know, good things do take time. And Mm -hmm. that's like out of the instruments that I've tried in the past. And, you know, whether they're antiques or they're modern instruments that I think that the, you know, the more detailed, the better. And I feel like it's, you know, it's kind of like the human body, right? Like you have, you know, we're all like 99% like really, really similar. But then like, there's that, like that 1% where you make an Adam Kologi violin as opposed to like a Strad or like, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? So speaking of Strad, speaking of the Clot family, um, what are some of your favorite designs that you like to like, or templates that you like to make uh, your violins out of? I think I, I've, when I tried your violin, was it a Guarneri model or was it a Strad model? I can't remember. It was one of the two. Um, I this was maybe around. It. Tried, I think the one you tried was a Guarneri, but that was a while ago. I don't remember. It, I had two that were around the same time. One was a Strad, one was a Guarneri. I, I think right. it was the Guarneri that you played. Yeah, it had like a um, nice, beautiful brown varnish on it, and it was antiqued really beautifully. And uh, yeah, I, I remember it was just—it was just like really easy to play. I just remember that it was just very easy to play. And but, anyways, to to the to the question, like, are there any specific kind of templates that you do kind of see yourself using frequently, or I'll just I'll just leave the question at that. Uh, as far as like models and stuff, like I. I do tend, I, I love the Gordonary stuff. Like he was so, I, and he was just so free-handed and that really lends itself to the way that I work. Cause while I do take my time and focus on the things that are important to getting a good sound and get and making a beautiful object, um, I do work fast. Um, I, like I, I try desperately to not get bogged down in micrometers in tenth of uh, like it's tenth of a millimeter disease is what it really is like people right have, mm-hmm. it, it is it's too much for me like some people love working like that and that's fine uh i really think that for myself the way that i see forward in becoming a better maker overall is to focus on completing more instruments i think there's more to learn by making a few like by making those little mistakes than absolutely obsessing and dialing in and making one instrument a year, two instruments a year. Um, I would really, I think there's much more to learn by repetition, which again, goes back to the whole, my rental story. Like it really, that's how you learn is just do a thing, do it well, concentrate and over and over and over again. And when you've gotten to the point where it's good and it works, um, move on. Like right. if, it's, if it's off by a tenth of a millimeter, like just leave it. Don't carve the bar out and put a new bar over a tenth of a millimeter. That is a waste of, I really think that's a waste of time unless there's, there's a difference there. That's in my making. However, if a customer was to say that and to say, I, you know, you put a new bar in this thing and it, it, it really, it, it's nice bar and it works well, but it's just not doing what I, I just want more. I want more tubbiness in the, in the C string on this viola. Like I just really want it to, then of course, like it becomes, that's, that's a different job. 
does a very different job. Right. I think you, you made, you made it very clear. I think I'm glad you made that clarification because, you know, being a violin maker and being a violin restorer, you kind of have to wear different hats. Whereas a violin maker, you're like, you know, I'm okay with this. Even there are like, there's some imperfections about it. I think the overall product sounds excellent. But when you have a, when you have a client coming in that is asking for like a very specific need and that specific need isn't met, then you alter it or, you know, you do whatever you need to do to make it right. And, um, and I guess to your point to make, that's a disadvantage of purchasing older instruments because you're, uh, depending on the history of that instrument, that Mm -hmm. instrument could have been like 200 years old and only played on just a handful of times as opposed to like an older instrument that is played on very, you know, on for many, 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 many years, then yeah. it's, a, it's a completely different conversation. I think it definitely puts things into like, you know, perspective when, you know, when you're wearing different hats. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, but leading back to the, to the, which models I, I, I like mm-hmm. kind of informed by that, uh, what I, the way that I make, I, I do copy when I try to, when I make a, uh, an instrument, I don't mix and match, you know, like I won't put a Strad scroll on a ordinary body. Right. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. It just doesn't fit the overall aesthetic. I, I assume. Yeah, it doesn't, it looks weird and small and, you know, you have this really clean, like perfectly, uh, you know, done scroll with this body that like, you know, the F holes are all like weird and it doesn't jive. But when there's a level where I stop, um, what I'll do is usually when I'm starting, I will, I will say, well, I'll look back at what I was doing before. And I'll say, well, you know, that edge work really didn't work out. Like it was, it was off. And I'll try to find a way to, and this is just, it's most, this is more working style rather than final sound. Um, but I'll say, well, it didn't really end up looking like, you know, a Guarneri edge work or a Guarneri scroll. Like it was a little too chunky or it was a little too thin or, and I'll be like, you know what, that's something I'm going to work on on this violin. And so I'll take all the things that I, I'll try to focus on a, on a specific part. You know, obviously if I, I'll try to make everything else as nice as I can. And, but I will say, you know what, I really didn't like about that last one that I turned out. I didn't like where the purfling was. And I'll focus on that and I'll do really targeted research as much as I can, whether it's the internet or library or the bookshelf at Carriage House, which is a gold mine. Um, you, and just figure out that one part, really focus on it. And, and that's where I'll spend my extra time on that model. And then hopefully I make an improvement and I'll move on to the next thing and the next one. And I try to make it in the style of, you know, I rarely, I'm, do, I'm actually doing it right now, but I rarely copy a particular model or a particular violin, actually. I'll work in the style of Guarneri or I'll work in the style of Strad. I love that. I, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. So it's not like an exact replica per se. But it's yeah. definitely something like you're inspired from this template or from this model, and then you kind of make it your own. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I um, love it. Yeah. yeah. So that that's great. So Guarneri, Guarneri models. Um, what let's let's talk about maybe what you're working on these days, like during during the quarantine, during the COVID nineteen, you know, 
quarantine? Uh, like, I'm, what what are some of the things that you're working on these days? Like, are you working on the Guarneri models? Are you making a, a an Adam Kologi template? <laughs> like, is there an Adam Kologi template that you've like based off all of your research and all the violence that you've that you've seen and come to the shop that you've kind of like settled on one that is kind of like your own? Um, what I'll do, what I've been doing is I've been, I actually am building this really wild Amore type thing with, for a friend of mine. Um, he commissioned it and it's, it's, uh, do you know what a hard, a Hardinger fiddle is? It's a Norwegian. You know, I, I'm not familiar with it, but I love to know what it's about. They have, they have a whole bunch of, they have, this one has 10 strings. So it's sort of like a, uh, Violin de Amore. That's gnarly. It, also, it has it has uh, five sympathetic uh, strings that run under the fingerboard. Oh and yes, so it, yeah, you, yeah. They, yeah I've seen I've seen that. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Now now that I see yeah. it, like there's there's one in the um, I believe there's one in the MFA in Boston. Is is, is there not? Oh, they, yeah, they have they have a whole they have a whole collection. They have it's a whole right. collection like, of instruments in MFA oh, in yeah. Boston. Yeah, so yeah, that that's how I was able to recognize that in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I sense this one is it it's. It's not a, he wanted it built in a uh, more classical style. Like usually those, they have a bunch of inlay and they, the head is usually like a dragon or a lion and they're very rough, you know, big high arch and, you know, big wide pine top, you know, not nice fine spruce or anything like that. And the backs are sometimes weird wood, uh, like, you know, alder or something like that. Um, But he wanted it built more in a classical, like Italian style. Um, and so I've been, I came up with this whole, I bet I even have them if you want to look at them, but I'd love to of, see one. If you have one nearby, um, the whole, they have, there's this whole set of plans that I had to come up with because it's sort of like a five string violin, which is an odd duck, right? but it's, yeah. all, it's also an Amore with 10 strings. So you had to like the, you have to do all this work here. I'll just real quick, hold them up. Yeah. 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 Good one. But like. Ooh, I'm not sure. Uh, it's not going to show up, is it? Whoa! No, I, I can see it. Yeah, so I can see yeah. that you have like the different piece, the, the different sheets of paper, like for the underneath design and then for above. That's really gnarly. I'd yeah, love to see the final product. I'm sure you'll post it on your Instagram or something. <laughs> oh, you want to see it now? It's like right here. Oh yeah, yeah. Show me. But um. By the way, for like for the you, for those of you who are listening, you know, <laughs> I'll leave the link to the YouTube link um in the podcast description notes, so that way we that you get to see Adam's creation. It's amazing. Yeah. So right now it's a little pale because I wanted, um, I wanted a little bit of texture on it and it's mm. really matted down because I rubbed it down. Um, so it looks a little anemic. But I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of pale right now. It's only one coat. Great. I see. I like what you do with the scroll. Like huge. The scroll yeah. is huge. Yeah. But, but you have to have this like crazy recurve to get, the string, get enough, enough strings in there and have them clear. Mm. to get to the peg box and it, it's really fun to design stuff like that and um, I, I can imagine that the bridge also has to be really high too right uh not partic- more like a viola like 30 like a yeah. viola so okay not, yeah yeah less like a less like a violin but really it's it's violin length like it has a standard string length and neck length like it would feel feels like a five string violin the neck's mm. gonna be a bit wide yeah i understand that's awesome yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I always, I always, even, even every time, like I, every time I talk to you, like you're always like, you're always in like in a good mood when you're around your violins. 
and um, that's that's always a nice thing to to see and to hear because like you know you're as musicians like you're you're enjoying your profession you're enjoying your job oh yeah yeah oh my my wife tells me she was telling me last week i was like sitting here working and like working through some problem and and then she i I was like i was like yeah i think tomorrow i'm gonna get to the grads or whatever it was and she and she was like you know you could take a day off and i'm like there's nothing else i'd rather do (laughs) right like that there's really like it'd be i do take time off and my my schedule is like really wild but i I really wouldn't ra- there's almost no place I'd rather be than at my bench. Like I just love That's it. awesome, man. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's you know that's also very similar to me because I'm always thinking like I I you know as a as a teacher right now I teach at many different locations and sometimes I feel angry like for no reason because I'm not actually practicing my instrument, you know. Do you, do you get that yeah. sometimes when you're like oh, I not get only that are you making all the time. Yeah, it's it's so like it's so annoying but like the moment I play a G major scale or like any kind of scale or a sound out of my instrument I'm like Oh, okay. I can feel a little oh, yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, that's no, like I, the, the the stress is is like my stress relief, and I and I'm sure too. the listeners feel that way too. Where like in the, in these crazy times where we have like this one thing that we can focus on that's n- not like scrolling down Twitter or social media or like watching the news, where it's like really really crazy. Um, at least in the states right now, it's it's like one very nice thing to kind of like forget about everything else and just focus on this one thing and just making a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. I also want to get back to the, to what you said that you make instruments in the style of, Mm -hmm. I I like that you said that as opposed to like being a perfectionist copyist, because you still want to like, it's it's really cool to me to hear that because you're still respecting the tradition, but you're also making it in your own. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I really, uh, it, a lot of that is by, is by circumstance. Like if somebody, if somebody came to me and said, here's my, here's my Guarneri, can you make me a bench coffee? Um, that's a tough, that's all, a would, tough thing to do. <laughs> for, first of all, I would say you should go to somebody else because there's other people who are better at it than I am. But secondly, I'd be like, can I keep it for two weeks anyways and look at it? <laughs> but <laughs> because, because I'm not, uh, I, I'm not a copyist. Like that is a specialty. It really is in the violin making world. Like making a be- making like a true copy is. I think it's nearly impossible. Like from a poster. Like a lot of makers, including myself included, use the the Strad posters. They have measurements on the back, and it has a big picture of the violin from all angles on the front. Um, they're great references, but making a true to life copy from one of those is so hard like it's it's almost near impossible because you're not you're not dealing with the same kind of material that they did used like 300 years ago the trees were different like the the moisture the humidity the dryness everything and even like like there's a there's a subtlety to to a violin arch that like even if you take the templates that are that they that they give you they usually give you a cat scan of the of the back and it'll show you, or a CT scan, it'll show you a cross-sectional, like like you chopped a violin into slices, and it'll show you the arch that way. Um, even if you follow those, your arch is, if you had the actual violin, you would notice the discrepancy. Um, large, I think that's largely because everybody measures differently. Like uh, whoever John, you know, John Dilworth makes, ha, has made the posters, I think, in the past. And if he 
is measuring with his caliper, with his hands, with his eyes, it's going to be different than mine. Um, it's going to be as accurate. I'm not denigrating uh, John Dilworth. He does a fantastic job. But it, just the way like, just the way you approach the instrument is a it's yeah. going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And there's uh, you know I've looked I've looked at many of those posters and there's measurements on there that I think are key that I think are like, wow, in order to cut a scroll that is really accurate, he's missing 10 measurements. And I wonder why, you know, and it's, it's probably because the way he works or the way that he has studied how Guarneri may have worked, he was like, that is an inconsequential measurement. And you should already, it's either he assumes you already should know, which sometimes is true. Um, or, it, it is just not something that he does because everybody approaches this so differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like I was uh, on that note, like I was thinking of um, like, uh, like how uh, I think, I think actually in the interview you did with, with, I watched the interview you did with, with uh, Doug Cox. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and he mentioned something, um, uh, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to get it quite right, but he said he something along the lines of he has found that there are no secrets in bio right. making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did and say that. Like you know, people talk about it, people opine about it all the time, and they say, "Oh, Stradivari's secret was this, or the Varnish secret is this." I totally agree with Doug on that. Um, but what I would, the way I would, what I would put a, as a caveat on what he said for myself would be that there are no secrets. But the real secret is kind of being able to, to adapt um, what somebody else has shown you into a method that works for you. It's, it's sort of similar to playing. Like if I, it's like a, a lot of players will, will come to you and say like, what's the secret of, Guarneri, of a Guarneri sound? And you're like, well, uh, Guarneri doesn't sound like anything like you do. Um, That's true. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it is the player. It really is the player, and and everybody's opinion is so different. And it'd be like me saying, like Eric, what does? Because I'm not a classical player, but I, I was like, I was like, how does Bach work? How does Bach <laughs> right. sound like Bach? And it's like, well, you can only go so far with mechanically explaining that, and a lot of it is left up to interpretation, taste, and your own physicality. Right, uh, exactly. So, uh, and that, that comes true, and that is true in violin making through and through. It's like one person's magic formula is another person's what is this stuff? It's terrible. And let's just end the conversation right there. <laughs> let's just end it right there. Um, Adam, it's been such a pleasure. I, I know we're running out of time here. I really want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your busy bench <laughs> to uh, talk about your process and being a violin luthier. And, um, and of course, I'm going to leave all your Instagram links in the podcast description notes so that way people can um, learn more about Adam and look at his works. They're really, really great. You won't be disappointed. And Adam, until next time, thank you for listening to the Violin Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to hit the subscribe button because it really helps us a lot. And so that way I can interview awesome people like Adam. Adam, thanks so much again. Really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure, man.